Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in our review of Stanley's War. It's April 1945, and the Silver King's War is winding down. Stanley's April, in contrast to his extraordinarily busy March, is an easy one, although he remains busy. The Silver King flew two April missions on the 3rd and 20th, and at month's end, he had a total of 38 missions. April's activities were mostly social, and you may remember of an adventure that the Silver King had in his first week of April of 1945. He wrote a very descriptive letter to his family on April 6th. It began, Dearest Ones, Once again, four or five days have passed without my writing, and if I'm not careful, it might become a habit that would be bad. I'm not sure I should be telling you what happened the last three days because of security reasons. However, I'm going to take the chance because it's just too good to keep. Besides, it's my excuse for not writing. This was Stanley's engine trouble letter, where his guys were flying over Germany on that Tuesday, and they developed engine trouble through a mechanical failure, and had to make an emergency landing. Luckily for them, it was near an American field hospital. Stanley described all the nurses as grandkids who were so sweet. He described it as just like old times in the States, where everyone speaks the same language. And he related how he got very friendly with a kid from New Orleans. Her name was Elaine Miller, and he hoped to see her again soon. Elaine's name was prominent in the Silver King's personal phone directory, and over the years of doing the work of following the Silver King's War, I've often thought about dialing the numbers to some of those women to see if anyone is still alive. The King's first April we concluded with the discovery of a cache of champagne in Koblenz, and he and his guys took hundreds of bottles home from their stop to A-72. And the king, true to form in all of his writing, reflects upon the questions his mother had about his week on the Riviera. As he described it, I'm glad you finally received my letter from the Riviera and know what a grand time I had. You asked about my dates there. I guess I forgot to put that in. Well, you know me. I met a very nice married woman with whom I spent most of my time. It seemed that she and her husband didn't get along very well, and she was very eager to be loved. Stanley wrote seven descriptive letters in April. And that writing was around some good work for him as the acting squadron bombardier, while the captain who was the regular 
squadron bombardier, was away on R&R. And our hero really enjoyed the work. It helped him understand more about what was at stake in those big jobs and acknowledging at that time that it would be good if he got that captaincy. As Stanley Spring continued, he wrote to acknowledge the death of FDR, a man he considered to be a great international leader. And he also related later in the month how good he was feeling, perhaps at his best, since arriving at A-72. The spring weather was good for the king and his guys. They were playing baseball and swimming and shopping at a very full imaginary nearby deli so they could find some cheese and kosher pickles. As you know, the king was always hungry. Stanley was happy to report of another visit with Elaine Miller when they returned to Koblenz for more champagne. And as he reached the end of April, he would be 22 on the 23rd. He celebrated at the grand opening of the officers' club, and he remained leading flights with a new pilot from Baltimore, a man named Howard. As you know, the Silver King's plane, the Martin Marauder, built by Glenn Martin, was assembled through much work and design and intense negotiations in Middle River, Maryland, just east of Baltimore. As April transitioned to May, Stanley wrote a May 1 letter describing how his unit had moved to Venlo, Holland, and that they were all waiting on word regarding the war's end. He wrote three letters that first week, and part of the first one was, of course, responding to his mother's questions about why Jim Fomby's father would contact her because he hadn't heard from his son. It was a long explanation about how the guys had gone missing and there wasn't a word he could say about it. His three-page May 7th letter described a beautiful day and that the nightmare of the war in the European theater of operations was over. On May 11th, he reported that he and his buddies got tight and enjoyed the celebration while wondering if they would be shipped to the Pacific front. He also was candid about perhaps a long summer in Europe while waiting to get home. The formal surrender of Nazi Germany was on May 8th, 1945, and it brought celebrations throughout the Allied world. After years of nighttime blackouts enforced to protect against aerial attacks, cities lit up once again. In Paris, the opera house shone with lights colored red, white, and blue, on for the first time since September of 1939. At 8 p.m. on May 8th, according to the New York Daily News, all the jewels in Broadway's crown were full aglow, and the great chunky masses of humanity seemed to swim in the light, and their spirits were warmed by it. 
as joy swept across the victorious Allied countries, the U.S. forces encountered devastation and hostility in Europe. To those in Germany, the Americans who came into their country did not serve as liberators, but as conquerors. And the troops were tasked with occupying regions facing monumental challenge. They had to restore order, keep the peace, and try to build democracy. For those living in Europe, there were scarce resources, many displaced persons, and devastated cities that placed overwhelming demands on the occupying forces. Richard E. Berlin, who was the president and chief executive officer of the Hearst Foundation during World War II, wrote a firsthand account of his view of the post-war conditions endured by people living in countries directly affected by the war. He was one of the first American civilians to visit post-war Germany, traveling at the invitation of the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, to document the conditions on the ground. When visiting Germany's capital city, he described the scene this way, quote, On all sides we saw overturned tanks and cars. In an area of about 10 miles wide in the center of the city, every building is smashed and destroyed. Berlin ordinarily had a population of around 4 million people. Now it is estimated there are 3.5 million living in settlers, hovels, and anywhere for shelter, continually seeking food in lines, and hundreds of people queuing for what was available. He described Berlin as a truly dead city, and that words cannot describe the horrid and pitiful existence of its peoples. The Allied forces holding the territory, formerly under Nazi control, divided the land into four zones of occupation, with the Americans basing their headquarters in Frankfurt. Initially, the Allies planned to govern Germany collectively through the Allied Control Council, which operated until relations within the council began to break down in 1946. At the beginning of the occupation, the Council issued rules prohibiting fraternization to avoid confrontation or violence between the German people and the occupying forces. And initially, such prohibitions included all interactions with the German citizens. In spite of the Allied Controls Council's intended purpose of collective governance, cooperation between the Soviet forces and the other Western powers deteriorated, which meant new conflicts about tensions and problems in occupied Europe. The Soviet forces held a special hatred of the German people, and word of the horrific acts that occurred in areas occupied by the Soviets soon spread across Germany. Tales of homes and villages ransacked and destroyed, and of violent attacks on German women by Soviet soldiers became well known throughout the region. In the midst of fighting resistance and working to maintain order, U.S. troops began a program of denazification to purge Germany of the Nazi party's ideology. While in power, the Nazis used the education system, their public broadcasts, and other means to promote their beliefs, 
And following the war, the Allied Control Council issued directives calling for the removal of Nazi symbols, the forced disbandment of Nazi groups or organizations, and the end of teaching Nazi ideology in schools. Leading this effort, the commanding generals, including Dwight David Eisenhower and George S. Patton, ordered German citizens, especially those who were members of the Nazi party, living near concentration camps, to walk through the camps and witness the horrors of the Holocaust. This effort was planned to prevent a resurgence of Nazi ideology and document the atrocities and eliminate efforts to diminish or erase what the Nazis had done. Just after the official Nazi surrender, the Silver King received the Temple Emanuel Servicemen Bulletin from March and April of 1945. Stanley was the lead story on the front page of that bulletin. A picture of the Silver King was next to the story, which headlined, Lieutenant Silverfield wins air medal cluster, also promotion, and read, Lead bombardier of a six-ship flight, Lieutenant Stanley L. Silverfield, has been decorated twice and promoted in rank during the past six weeks. Raised in rank from second to first lieutenant, he has also been awarded the Air Medal and Oak Leaf Cluster. When last heard from Stanley, he had completed 36 missions from an air base somewhere in France. Lieutenant Silverfield, who was a bombardier navigator, entered the service in January 1943 and went overseas in September 1944. He has seen active combat ever since leaving the country. In letters to his parents, Stanley has been fulsome in his praise of the Red Cross. He says the workers are like angels from heaven, and no one in the States can possibly imagine all the good they do. Lieutenant Silverfield and Technical Sergeant Arthur Phillips, Jr. met by chance in a village in France. It was the first time in three years the two Emanuelites had seen each other. They had tried to contact each other as they knew they had the same APO number, but never had been able to get together. The reunion resulted in a good old-fashioned Birmingham Bull session. In his most recent letter, Stanley says he is working harder than ever but that his morale is higher than ever, as things really look good over there. Just below Stanley's story on that front page is a headline that read, General Rose is killed by Nazis. Major General Maurice Rose, famed commander of the 3rd Armored Division of the 1st Army, who was killed March 30th near Paderborn, Germany, by a Nazi tankman, was the son of Rabbi Samuel Rose of Denver, Colorado. General Rose was killed after he had been captured. Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson called General Rose's death a severe loss. The war secretary stated that no one was more skilled in directing the operations of an armored column. He was a leader who inspired enthusiasm and confidence. At a memorial service in Denver, Rabbi Charles H. Cover, who officiated at the Bar Mitzvah of Major General Rose 33 years ago, paid tribute to the slain hero's military ability 
and his love for country, family, and religion. The Silver King wrote a deep and definitive letter to his parents from Germany on May 14, 1945. Dearest ones, I haven't heard from you for a few days, but I'm not complaining. I haven't written as often as I should, so I can't expect to receive. Now that hostilities have ceased, I'm hoping you're not expecting me to write as regularly as before. The situation hasn't changed since my last letter. Consequently, I can't give you any news. You're probably very anxious to know what will happen to me now, and I assure you I'm just as anxious, but your guess is as good as mine. One of three things can carve my immediate future. I can become part of the army of occupation. I can go direct to the Pacific, or I can be sent home. All my hopes are based on the latter, and I shall be greatly disappointed if one of the others becomes true. So my advice to you is to be patient as you have been thus far. Remember, everything happens for the best. After VE Day, we were given a three-day holiday during which time I visited that part of Germany which had caused us so much hell during the hostilities, the Ruhr Valley. I visited Essen, Dusseldorf, all being big industrial centers. I was very anxious to see just what the Allied air power had done, and I was very satisfied with the results. All the cities have been reduced to rubble, the same as I had described of Koblenz, only a little worse. It's evident that air power was the deciding factor. They were crippled in every means of manufacturing, besides the entire city being leveled. And Stanley continued, Of course, it's easy to see how the army has drained the families. Only the very old and very young are left, and I never saw so many children between the ages of one and five. It's remarkable the way Hitler had his people producing. You can almost look at them and see another war in 20 years. And I'm not kidding. Of course, it will be a hard winter for most of Germany, especially for the people in cities, because of the food shortage, and that will be due to the lack of transportation. But I suppose Uncle Sam will feed them as usual. I only hope that this time the peace terms will be adhered to. If not, God help us 20 years from now. And then the king, deep in his letter, responds to the temple bulletin. I received the temple servicemen with my face plastered all over it, and I've never been so disgusted in all my life. I'm absolutely ashamed of myself, and thank God I'm not there to face the people because the embarrassment would be more than I can bear. Why you ever did such a thing I shall never know. I simply can't understand you. Surely you must have known better than to consent to such notoriety. I'm not a hero. I haven't done any more than the next man. When I saw that, I was so ashamed I couldn't even show it to my buddies. I almost feel like writing the rabbi asking him to retract the ridiculous article. But what's done is done and can't be undone. It seems to me that you would have asked my permission since I didn't agree with the last article written about me. And this time you can't say it wasn't your fault, as I know you're the only ones that have my picture. To say that our hero, the Silver King, was mad at his mother for what she did is an understatement. He was a hard-working warrior, like his fellow aviators. 
and he didn't want the notoriety that came along with being on the front page of the Temple Bulletin. He was doing his job, working hard to survive the war and win. His front page story was difficult to reconcile with the death and destruction of the war in Europe. But, as the Silver King said, what's done is done. And as we let the words of the king resonate, we have reached the end of this episode of our review of Stanley's War. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. <laughs> 